Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men, a podcast about role-playing games, tabletop war games, and board games. I'm your host, Troy. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. And you can call me Ed. My pronouns are they and them. I didn't do my homework for this episode, so I will have to take a zero uh, for today's test scoring. Oh, that's too bad, because this will be on the final. Damn. And today, we're talking about clerics. So I guess, Ed, you have made a clerical error. Yeah, even more doubly so, since I have not ever played a cleric. And as far as I can remember, I don't think I've ever actually had a cleric in a D&D party in the entire time that I have played the game and that I can actually remember. I seem to recall us having some back in high school. Did we? Mm, if yes. I did, I must have forgotten. I only ever, I only ever seem to uh, remember us having, like, rangers, barbarians, and uh, some kind of wizard and or sorcerer as the most common classes that showed up in our games. Yes, but I think we made Joe play a cleric when he was playing with us for a few times over the summer. Oh, yeah, that... That sounds vaguely familiar, and I think he was only there for, like, a little while, and then he bounced, and then Haas might have taken over as his character. Uh, I've been in a couple of different campaigns where someone has played a cleric, and as a dungeon master, I have run NPC clerics for villains and for parties that needed some extra healing, so I know a good bit about this. But first, before we talk about clerics and where they came from and what they do and why they're fun, we have the hobby segment. So this week, I have done very little in terms of hobby. I uh, just painted some stuff and honestly, that was it. Painted some stuff and read some fantasy related things that will maybe help in the future with just giving me ideas to pull from. Ed, what have you done? Uh, likewise, I have also done very little hobby-wise. Right now, work is pretty slow, so I'm only working like maybe 20 hours a week. Uh, but all that time has been filled with working on a home automation and residential technologies product project. And so that's taken up a majority of any free time that I've gained by not having any actual work to do. So the only thing that I've done really hobby-wise is running my 3D printer and doing some experiments with printing, since that's kind of a set-it-and-forget-it type project that I can start it as I'm working on homework and then check on it several hours later when I'm done. I've had about 50-50 success rate on the prints. I've made some kind of cyberpunk like terminals and just scattered terrain. I've made some Blood Bowl players since the Amazons currently don't have like an official range that's produced by Games Workshop. And I'm not really a fan of any of the really expensive ones that I've seen that are produced by third parties. I decided to use Hero Forge to create some of my own Blood Bowl players and see how well those STLs print out um, on a commercial 3D printer instead of whatever Hero Forge uses, and they turn out pretty well. Um, I've tried some experiments with increasing, or I guess I should say decreasing, the layer sizes 
about 0.05 is the average that I've been printing most things at. And when it comes to 28 millimeter stuff, it it's okay, but you don't get a lot of really fine detail. So I've tried going down to about 0.01 and 0.02 millimeters per layer and have had some pretty good results with that. Only problem with going that low is that you also tend to get a lot of sprue failures because those sprues get pretty weak and you can't really set your printer to say this portion of the model is, you know, the actual body of it. So we want these to be really thin layers while these other layers here are going to be sprues. So those need to be thicker. The whole model is just one uniform thickness in terms of how far up the z-axis the print head goes. Um, so when I've tried to go down to those really tiny increments, it tends to not fare as well. But I was able to print a version of my Blood Bowl, Blood Bowl Star Player who is at the maximum size that my printer will do, which is somewhere between 80 and 90 millimeters in height, and did that with a 0.02 millimeter thickness on the layers. And she came out looking pretty good, um, aside from an arm breaking off during the washing process. Uh, much like marble, resin is pretty brittle and doesn't like to hold its own weight. And she got roughed up a bit too much and broke an arm off. And then some of her fingers didn't print on the other hand, but some uh, sculpting clay can fix that. Just turn that half-printed hand into a bandaged hand and I mean, hey, it's Blood Bowl, you're going to lose some fingers. Yeah, I was going to say, losing an arm seems like a pretty standard Blood Bowl thing, so. Yeah, it just, with the, the way that the arm came off, it looked kind of weird, because she's kind of, like, gesturing to the crowd, holding the heart of some unfortunate other Blood Bowl player, and it would look kind of weird if she just had a stump of an arm just pointing in the direction of the audience, smirking. So, I decided I'm going to glue that back on, and then a little bit of putty should help fix up the rest of it. But, yeah, other than that, not a whole lot of hobby going on because printing is just kind of a set-it-and-forget-it type thing. But with this upcoming week, if work is still slow and I'm now done with my class, hopefully I'll be able to actually get some more printing done. Nice. Clerics. They're the priests. They're the heel bots. They're the ultimate support class. And they are also the third class we're talking about, and at the same time, the third class created for Dungeons & Dragons. But where did they come from? What are the roots of clerics? I'm guessing with most of the classes that we've done, somewhere from history. Yes, definitely somewhere from history. Religion's been around for a long time, and priests are, you know... A thing. The cleric was drawn really from a couple of different sources. Uh, the, one of the key things was um, the bio tapestry, um, where it depicts a religious leader with a mace and the person known as uh, Archbishop Turpin, who was a like bishop and known for some like historical mythological stuff. He appears in the uh, the Song of Roland. So a priest or, like, fighting priest is a staple of medieval narratives. And that, you know, was something that Gygax was looking at heavily when he 
was working on the creation of Dungeons and Dragons and Chainmail, which is what, you know, came before Dungeons and Dragons. In Chainmail, originally, there were two classes, the Fighting Man and the Magic User. There was no ability to heal. And as the game turned into Dungeons and Dragons, they started doing dungeon crawls, and it became more and more apparent that having somebody who could heal and conserve resources was very important. Which is why they added the cleric that had the ability to heal and also was influenced by, like, B-horror movies, specifically Dracula, the original one, and had the ability to, like, brandish a holy symbol to turn undead, specific, you know, like they did with Dracula, where they pulled up the cross and go, you know, back, foul beast, brah! Which was one of the core aspects that they liked and thought was cool, and so that became part of the clerics in 1974, making it the third Dungeons & Dragons class. They were called clerics initially, which is interesting because it means they're the only class that has appeared in every edition under the same name, since Fighting Man became Fighter and Magic User was turned into Wizard. They appeared in later editions as well, uh... AD&D, they showed up pretty much the same, but with more deities to worship and uh, expanded spell list. In 2nd edition, they had more abilities, more different things to worship, more like powers you could get from who you worshipped. In 3rd edition, same basic thing. You could now worship not just a god, but sort of more of a concept. Uh, you got to pick domains, which were, like, certain areas that allowed you, that were, you know, linked to either the concept or the deity you worshipped, and determined, like, what bonus spells and bonus abilities you would get. Fourth edition was kind of the same. Clerics in fourth edition were supporter, leader classes. Um, the fun fourth edition cleric thing was the so-called laser cleric. <laughs> Lasers. Nice. Because one of the core builds for 4th edition clerics allowed them to cast a bunch of radiant spells uh, that were like lines of holy fire shooting everywhere, and so they just they just called them laser clerics. 4th edition was weird. 4th edition was weird. I do like the, the joke of laser clerics. And then 5th edition rolls around, and clerics are back to, you know what most people expect they wear heavy armor they have a decent hit dice they're like able they have holy symbols and they can channel divine power through them they have full spell casting and a huge list of spells to cast and they've got domains as their specialty path the way barbarians have paths and bards have colleges clerics have domains and they are second, I think, only to the wizard in terms of how many different options they can choose from. Because the wizards have many schools of magic, and the cleric has a lot of different domains, because there are a lot of deities out there. What are the big features? Well, the biggest one is Channel Divinity, which allows you to take divine energy and do specific magical effects... One of which is turn undead, or and eventually destroy undead, where you present your holy symbol, you go, ah, back foul beast, and 
undead run away or cower or, if they're weak enough, just get instantly vaporized by the power of holy faith. The other one is determined by your domain. The player's handbook has a bunch of domains. Uh, the first is knowledge, which gives you some extra spells and also gives you some abilities to like make checks regarding lore or read people's thoughts or um, touch items and see visions of what was going on with it. The life domain is all healing all the time. Uh, you get additional spells related to healing you your healing spells are better and your healing spells just continually get better and heal you when you cast them on other people or heal multiple people it's all heal all the time the light domain is a cleric that focuses on like spells that produce light and it's clerics that might worship like a sun god it also gives you more damaging spells. Uh, light domain clerics get fireball, which can lead to good times for nice parties that want to just blow things up. Who doesn't love a fireball? Goblins. Goblins do not like fireball, in my experience. Fair enough. Uh, they also, light domain clerics also get some stuff that lets them, like, blind people or just create a thing of light around themselves they're they're cool they're a very good um main character type of cleric nature domain clerics are when you want to be a druid but you like wearing armor <laughs> uh their spells involved they get a bunch of spells mostly from the druid list they get the ability to charm animals and plants and like deal with the elements a little bit they're basically druids that can't turn into animals. But, you know, they have heavier armor, they have more weapons to wield, they get, you know, all the healing spells as well. They're, you know... I think I'd rather take the shape-shifting, to be honest. Yeah, I'd go with a druid over a uh, nature cleric most of the time. The Tempest domain is all about gods of storm and ice and stuff you get bonus damage with lightning you get call lightning and spells that do stuff with uh the weather and that kind of thing uh they can get flying speed at some point they're a very strong very buff type of cleric i don't know it just reading through that in the player's handbook it seemed almost kind of redundant with the nature cleric i don't I don't quite know their thought process on designing that, why they decided to separate out specifically storms from the rest of nature. So it would seem like as, as the nature cleric, you're already worshipping or somehow embodying the forces of nature or the forces of the universe, which I guess could be another way that you could try and distinguish your nature cleric from a druid if you're, like, worshipping the strong and weak nuclear forces. I'd say that the big difference is that the nature cleric is more about like plants and animals but aren't druids plants and animals well the difference between the nature cleric and the uh, nature domain and tempest domain is that nature is plants and animals and like the natural world and tempest is the raging storm and the weather and so nature domain would worship 
gods that are plants and... Or maybe we're overthinking this. Nature Domain will worship like a god of the harvest or something. And the Tempest Domain would worship Thor. Mm -hmm. You know, about the power of lightning in the storm. Or Zeus. Or, you know, other big gods that are going to throw lightning bolts and smash and wreck stuff. So it's about, like, how nature is used. I don't know, somehow it, somehow it still seems like that would be more of, like, a, like a subdomain within the nature. At least, to me. I don't know. I'm sure, I'm sure wizards had a reason for doing it the way that they did, but to me, at least, it seems a little bit redundant. I think part of the reason is that there are a lot of deities that are popular and well-known that are very much built on storm-related things. Perhaps because, you know, historical civilizations really, storms were a lot freakier when you had, when you, like, lived in a house without windows. It's getting real, man. We're out in nature all the time. A thunderstorm rolling in is the divine punishment at that point, right? If you've ever been out in the woods somewhere far away from everything when a thunderstorm rolls in, it's scary. Rain starts lashing, the sky grows dark, the lightning and thunder strikes, and you're just, like, out there going, oh, God, I wish I was back at my house right now. I've had similar experiences being on a scissor lift in a storm. Yeah. It's a lot of fun when you're uh, about 30 feet up in the air and you feel the wind start to carry away the uh, canopy of the gas station you're working on. Yeah, so that's why, in that situation, you should be praying to Thor and not to whatever random god of the harvest. You know, they have different things that don't overlap. What we'll to do some scholarly research, see who is the god of scissor lifts. Perhaps scissor lifts fall under the next domain, which is trickery. Trickery domain is for, like, mischief. Loki is a trickery domain god. That makes sense. It gets tricks, it gets abilities, um, a lot of, like, charm, disguise, illusion magic, as there's, like, bonus spells. Um, they get a cool channel divinity thing where they can create an illusion of themselves that just kind of wanders around instead of them. I've used that to effect in the past. They get uh, the ability to just become invisible for a while and do some other kind of interesting stuff. It's They're a very... They're like a rogue cleric. They can do stealth stuff. They can charm people. That sounds like the kind of cleric I would play, to be honest. And they still get to use heavier armor and, like, bigger weapons, too. So, bonus. Uh, and the last one in the player's handbook is the War Domain Cleric. It does what it says. It's on the tin. Yeah, it it's... They worship Ares, or whatever. It does what it says on the tin. Yes, they get heavier... They get proficiency in heavy armor, not just medium. They get a bunch of spells that are... Essentially stuff that gives them extra armor, or... They're, they get buff spells. Um, shield of faith, spiritual weapon, magic weapon, stone skin, that sort of thing. Uh, they get an ability that lets them make extra attacks. They get a channel divinity feature that allows them to add a bonus to your attack roll. 
so they can kind of guarantee a hit. And they get another ability that lets them sort of, like, do that to other people to just boost bolster those around them. They're, they're interesting. They're not as... They're pretty tanky, but I wouldn't say that they're as, like, good at helping out their friends as a... As some of the other clerics' domains. For some reason, tanky clerics seem to be the like the stereotypical conception that I always had of the cleric is that they're really tanky and they heal and that's about it. I mean, that is sort of the cleric thing, is that they can take a lot of damage and deal a good amount and that they have healing. But it doesn't end there. Xanathar's Guide to Everything added another couple of divine domains. Specifically, the Forge Domain. Your uh, blacksmith gods. Nice. Hephaestus, get in here. You're, a lot of dwarven clerics would probably fall into this one. They get a good set of uh, like bonus spells, stuff like Identify or Heat Metal. They also get a cool ability that's sort of a proto-artificer ability to turn an item magic, imbue magic into it. So if you need a magical sword, they can make that happen. They also get an ability to, well, they can wear heavier weapon, they get, uh, they can wear heavier armor, and they get the ability to kind of forge shit. They can make objects using magic. Um, it does have to include metal in the object, but, you know, that's about the biggest requirement. I take back what I said about the uh, trickery cleric, forge cleric would definitely be my go-to for that character class. They're, they're a cool little class, um, but the last, but the other one in Xanathar's is the Grave Domain Cleric. Uh, this is people who worship gods that are related to uh, death and the afterlife, Anubis, Osiris, um, the various, like, Hades, and I guess Hell for Norse mythology, and then the various fictional ones. They get some cool stuff. Uh, basically, they get a lot of necromancy spells added to their spell list. And then sort of the ability to improve improve healing people who are right on the brink of death at first, le at first level. And then they can like detect undead and they can um, do some things to make it easier to kill an a, a enemy or... Um, prevent people from dying. They're interesting. I quite like them. They get some cool powers right at the beginning. And a cleric that can do necromancy spells and is opposed to undead is quite interesting. Hmm. Yeah, that is... Well, I guess the, the more you know your enemy, the better you can slay them. Well, they don't get necromancy spells that, like, summon undead but more things that, like, vampiric touch that lets you drain hit points, or, you know, because necromancy spells have a lot of, like, debuff aspects to them. Mm hmm They'll just heal you for the price, for the, the low, low price of one soul. I think that's a warlock, actually. Yeah, that does, that does sound more like a warlock thing. Never mind. Tasha's Guide to Everything added three new divine 
domains. The order domain, which does what it says on the tin. They're all about that law. Uh, they get bonus spells that are things like command, hold person, locate creature. They're very lawful. And they're all about being the embodiment of the law. They get a voice of authority where they can, like, order people around. Yeah, pretty much they, they order people around. They're cops. They are the law. Sounds like uh, you could do a Modron order cleric as an interesting, if maybe stereotypical, character. Yeah, you could do a rogue Modron who was also an order cleric. That his mentality stopped matching exactly what it's supposed to, but he still wants to uphold the law. I would play him like Judge Dredd if I was doing that. Yeah, that could be cool. And then you have the kind of... Not exact opposite, but sort of role-playing opposite of the Peace Domain clerics. Sounds boring. They get a lot of stuff that, like, is defensive in nature. And a lot of their powers involves, like, healing people and bonding with the people around them. And um, they do buffs and protection kind of things. They're not going to be great at getting out front and fighting, but they are going to be great at preventing damage that happens to uh, the people around them. So they're more like just pure buffs in defense. They're pacifists, but that doesn't mean that you, the rest of their party has to be. Got it. Um, and, and that's not that they're pacifists. They don't have to be pacifists, but they do tend to like, not fight as much just as a role-playing element they'll fight when it suits them and then the last domain from tasha's is the twilight domain they would serve like deities related to darkness and um deities related to darkness i i suppose you you could have them serving like moon deities things like that they get a bunch of various like aura related spells domain spells uh, sleep is also on that list for fun. <laughs> Their biggest bonus is probably that they get a immediate 300-foot dark vision. Nice. And then they can do other, like, stuff related to... Mostly it's, like, creating auras of darkness that are helpful darkness. A sphere of twilight. Could have, sounds like it would also be good for, uh... Like, if you had an evil vampire cleric, that kind of sounds like one that would be a natural fit. Yeah, you could probably have a v evil vampire cleric. Um, yeah, I, I could see that. It, it It's an interesting subclass. I, I don't know how strong it is or how much use you could get out of it. But for someone who wants to do, like, a mood lighting cleric, you could do worse than the Twilight Domain. Actually, you know where that would fit really well? Uh, that would fit really well in Rhyme of Frostmaiden, considering it's dark all the time. Yeah, that would be kind of interesting. At least to me it seems interesting. I don't know. I mean, I might choose like a Tempest Domain Cleric for Rhyme of the Frostmaiden to get that sweet, sweet storm powers going. Oh yeah, that works too. It doesn't really do all that much. You can pick whatever sort of cleric fits with your own idea. It's your game. Do what you want. Do what you want. Cast a bunch of cleric spells. 
party of nothing but clerics. I would love to play a game that's all clerics, all worshipping different deities and with different um, domains and constantly, constant religious arguments. <laughs> that kind of sounds like something we might have to do in the future. Yeah, I mean, or you could do even better and have it be a mixture of clerics and paladins that are do basically doing the same thing. Religious arguments over, like, which deity or order of holy knights is better. Mm-hmm. Sirik could totally kick Salune's ass. Hey, hey, you take that back. Nope, not doing it. In fact, that would be a lot of fun, I think, to run in a... Uh, Curse of Strahd campaign. Ooh, yeah. Roll up with all clerics and paladins and just wholly symbol your way to victory. That sounds like fun. I like that idea. Yeah, it, it would be interesting. Um, the vampires would not know what hit them. I just worry that there's certain places in the Curse of Strahd that that would not help out as much as it should. And um, by the time they get to the Amber Temple... They better hope that they've leveled up enough or else they're going to get their asses kicked. Even with even with that number of clerics, would still be difficult? Yes, for reasons that are totally spoilers to the campaign, so I'm not going to go into them. Got it. They would, they would have a good time in most of it, but there are a couple of spots where being all clerics and all paladins would run them into trouble. Mm-hmm. When I played Curse of Strahd, I was a... My first character was a dwarf paladin who beat a lot of things to death with his hammer pretty fast until he got caught in a position where they needed to run away and he made the choice to hold off the enemy and got vaporized. <clears throat> Whoops. It, it did not go well for him. At no point did they even get a chance to recover his body. Just been annihilated. Yeah, pretty much. It was the only character. Uh, no, there were two character deaths, like complete character deaths in that campaign, and that was one of them. Mm -hmm. The other one happened because the character, uh, the player, thought his character wouldn't continue hanging out with the party because of role play issues, and so made a new character. Boo. Uh, well, I guess. I thought, for some reason, I thought you were going with uh, that player leaving the game entirely, but that's it's not as bad, I guess. Yeah, it was a little awkward, because we were destroying a vampire spawn that was like, no, don't kill me, I'm not evil, Blah, suck blood. And we're like, die, unholy creature. And he's like, eh, my character wouldn't be okay with this. It's like, but it's a vampire spawn. Yeah, I can't think of a whole lot of good reasons to not destroy vampire spawn if you have the chance yeah and my paladin certainly couldn't think of any reason not to destroy an evil vampire creature good times yeah that was a good campaign all right clerics that's about all i've got to say on them i totally had never given a whole lot of thought to the reason of why clerics always seem to carry maces or other blunt objects like that, I just assumed that it was because they had the, uh... You, ha you have, like, the ceremonial mace or ceremonial kind of, like, holy staff orb that seems to show up as part of, like, religious decor in places, but if it showed up on the bio tapestry, 
with some priest carrying a mace, that definitely would make a lot more sense. Because I can never figure any kind of actual thematic reason as to why clerics always just carry a big, heavy object on a stick. Yeah, it started with that. And then in first edition, they were, after they had introduced the paladin, they wanted to really have a, some good, strong way to differentiate the two. And making it so that clerics couldn't wield edged weapons, mm -hmm. for whatever reason, helped differentiate the sword and shield paladin from the, like, mace and holy symbol cleric. Yeah, that kind of makes sense, too. Since otherwise they just be for lack of a better term, kind of similar. At that point, it's one of them is slightly better at fighting and the other is slightly better at casting spells, but they can both do most of the things. Mm -hmm. So making sure that there's a big uh, mechanical difference in how they do stuff and what they can do makes a lot of sense. Yeehaw. So that's clerics. We have a segment on the podcast called board game corner woo yep so this one's a little bit different it's not strictly a board game but it's also not strictly an rpg um if you're older than us and had a childhood that occurred mostly in the 80s you're you might be familiar with these uh it's called the fighting fantasy book series originally was published by steve jackson games they're essentially choose your own adventure books with light RPG elements. So you'll roll some dice at the beginning of the book, and that will determine your character's essentially stats uh, for the rest of the book. And as you go along, you can choose, like a choose-your-own-adventure, you know, do you go left or do you go right? And depending on where you go, you can come across situations that will require you to make some kind of roll, uh, mostly on a 2d6. And depending on how you roll, that will change the outcome of the story, potentially kill your character, or send you in a different path than you had originally intended. There's about 60 to 70-odd books. Uh, they've jumped around between a couple of publishers at this point, um, but most of them were produced in the 80s. And I've gone through a couple of them, and I was very surprised at how much fun they actually are, um, especially if you're doing, like, different characters that have different stats. Uh, for one of them, I had a character who was very beefy and could kind of hammer his way through most encounters. And then I had another one who was not as great at fighting and came, came across a Cyclops and did not survive that encounter. And up until then, I'd managed to somehow make my way through the book up until that point. Um, going back to the beginning can kind of suck, but also if you're a veteran of choose-your-own-adventures, there's the trick of, you know, you put your thumb on the page and you didn't actually turn the page, so you never really you never really went that direction. Um, they're fairly common to find on eBay. You can find some of the original ones. Um, there's been a couple of reprints of some of the more popular books uh, from the beginning of the series. They're easy to find on eBay or whatever other internet retailers you choose. There's also a an app uh, for Fighting Fantasy that has, uh, looks like, 10 different books at the moment from kind of a selection of 
ones from the series that are more popular. Uh, Warlock of Firetop Mountain is the one that comes with Unlocked by default. It was the first book in the series, and so it's the one that's the most well-known. There's also been a couple of board game adaptations of Warlock of Firetop Mountain, where they essentially take out like the book aspect of it, and it's more like you're playing it on a board game table, but for all intents and purposes, it's essentially the same, just slightly less reading. I prefer to read it in the book format compared to the game one, and they're also a lot cheaper. Um, I've tried Citadel of Chaos. That's another one. It's uh, number two in the series. That one, you're a wizard who's trying to infiltrate this citadel, and instead of having uh, like a fight score or a dodge score, everything relies on spells that you pick at the very beginning of the book, and you have a very limited number of spells, so it's a lot more about resource management and trying to make sure that you have everything you need when you get to the final level of the Citadel. And then there's also number 10, uh, it's called House of Hell, which is like a haunted house type thing. You, your car breaks down and you go up to the spooky mansion, and it is hard. I have never gotten more than a few pages into this book, so some of them are more forgiving, others are just straight up unfair and more likely to cheat at, but if you're somebody who's uh, into kind of that light gameplay and just likes the idea of choose your own adventures, I'd say give the uh, Fighting Fantasy series a look. Uh, yeah, it sounds like it would be a good choice for somebody who maybe doesn't have a large board game group that they can play with on a regular basis and still wants to do board game type activities. Yeah, and they're even good just kind of like, uh, air quotes, casual games. Like I've, I used uh, the Fighting Fantasy app. I ran through a couple of the books uh, when I had my old job that where I worked at night and did essentially nothing for 12 hours every night. Um, I've played the game sitting around at the DMV just waiting, and it's just kind of a good low effort thing that you can do. And then, you know, whenever you're done with whatever time wasting you're doing, you can just put a little digital bookmark in there and then, you know, pick it up where you left off. What you need is a bookmark with like a bunch of different tassels on it. So you can like keep track of the five last things you've done or something. <laughs> auto save, auto save. Yeah. Or, yeah. Making save games. Putting your finger on the page, the original save scumming. Yeah, I guess it would be. You should do a speed run through one of the books at some point. I am like the world's slowest reader, so I don't think that's ever going to happen. All right, maybe a completionist run then. Yeah, if I could, if I could find an entire set for a somewhat reasonable price, that could be an interesting task. I mean, they're not super expensive, but just the fact that there's like 70-odd books in the series, and if, even if you're only paying like five bucks a book, it adds up. Yeah, I, I can see that. But yeah, they're good They're good single-player experiences, um, especially with the pandemic. Single-player experiences have been something that I've been expanding out more into. The first single-player game that I ever really tried was uh, doing Dark Souls, and that was before I was really heavy into board game stuff, and I'm like, this is kind of sad, you know, playing a board game on your own. But seeing just how many single-player tabletop experiences there are, and seeing the no the value of 
learning mechanics through single player, it's been a bit of an eye opener in terms of my understanding of board games and all that good stuff. Yeah, uh, looking at these sorts of games, there are a lot of interesting design elements that you could pick at and uh, take for your own designs and for your own campaigns. Yep. And I highly recommend looking at older games and trying to find the aspects that make them interesting and make them fun to play and incorporating those into games that you are making or running. You know, referencing older material is a great way to improve newer stuff. I think that's our podcast. Yeah, I think that's about it. Anything you want to say, Ed? Anything you want to promote? Join a union. Uh, IWW is a good way to go. Uh, support your local board game store, especially with the holiday season. And especially if they're doing like any kind of toy drive or event for underprivileged children. The D&D starter sets, which are inexpensive, combined with a pad of paper and some pencils, make great uh, gifts for those kind of events. And you can hopefully inspire uh, the next generation of role players. And then if you want to see the weird stuff that I'm doing with my 3D printer, uh, you can go to Instagram and follow me at Anna Madness, A-N-A Madness. I post on there pretty frequently, so you'll never be uh, without too much content there. Yes, and if you want to follow the show, we are on uh, Twitter at Knoll Country and also on Instagram with Knoll Country, uh, all one word. I think that's it for today. Thanks for listening, and until next time... Keep rolling sixes. Unless you're rolling d20s, in which case, keep rolling 20s. Yep. Always roll a 20.